Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to the Pre-Hospital Podcast. So hi, and welcome to episode one. For this first episode, we're going to be discussing airway management, and speaking with me today is my friend and colleague, Scott Hardy. We actually ended up having quite a long chat, so I've broken this down into two parts to make it a bit more kind of digestible for the listener. So yeah, let's uh, let's crack on. Morning, Scott. Thanks for coming on. Listen, mate, I've kind of I've introduced you briefly, but I wonder if you could just give us a bit more information about yourself, your background, and why you have this kind of interest in, in airway management. Yeah, absolutely, Sargs. Thank you, and thanks for having me on as well. Um, so yeah, my name's Scott Hardy. I work uh, as a critical care paramedic down in the southeast of England. Uh, I've been down uh, working in in the ambulance service there for for eighteen years, and uh, for the last ten years consecutively I've been working in the critical care team within the ambulance service. Um, I I specifically joined that role uh, because of my appetite and hunger and what probably at that time an unhealthy obsession regarding airway management Um, and so that's what took me into the job to feed that hunger Um, and so that's that's really my my day job. Uh, Outside of that I also uh, work in medical education uh, in, in multiple roles which I enjoy very very much probably my first love being as a, as one of the instructors for, for the UK and Europe for the difficult airway course uh, for first airway. Yeah, I like it. So I, I didn't realise that your interest in airway management kind of preceded your um, specialising in critical care. I think normally, I don't know, I just kind of assume that normally it's the other way around for people. But for you, I'm guessing, so airway airway first, was it? Uh, it was, it was, yeah. And uh, I mean, you know, I was, I, I was and still am very proud to be one of the, uh, one of the old hat uh, IHCD paramedics and so we you know and it was a different era back then uh, and, I, and I look on it both fondly and reflectively um, but I, I, I yeah we we, um, we definitely had a different 
different kind of moment of healthcare and exposure back then. And I was already very, very hungry and very passionate about high quality airway and breathing care. And when the role uh, of critical care paramedic first opened, um, I, I couldn't not join. I was the first CCP in my county um, when the program opened and I, and I couldn't not join uh, just to feed that. Yeah, like it. So there's some pretty good credentials then, 10 plus years of airway interest and um, I guess kind of exposure and experience. Um, and I guess that leads me on to the subject of this episode, which, um, like I said, is, is kind of airway management starting at the top um, and see how we mean to go on, I guess. So, um, yeah, thanks for that. The The aim of the um, episode then, like I said, is to discuss airway management um, and Clearly, we could talk for hours about it, but um, I've got a few questions that hopefully we can go through, um, which hopefully are quite poignant to, to pre-hospital practitioners. Um, and so I guess the objectives within the episode are to, to speak about airway management in the context of um, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, um, which is obviously quite a pertinent situation um, for good airway management, but um, also in terms of medical loss of consciousness, excuse me, and, and in trauma patients, as sometimes I think... Um, people concentrate kind of solely on cardiac arrest when actually as I'm sure you'll agree airway management um, good airway management is important in all of these presentations um, so if you're happy with that um, we'll kind of go for a few questions and, and see where it takes us if that's all right yes yeah, certainly fine so Scott my first question then a bit of an open question really is um, I guess what is the the goal of airway management so people often talk about a stepwise approach to airway management or sometimes you hear about people talk about certain airway interventions for certain clinical presentations. Um, but I wonder if you could just comment on what, in your experience, that actually means in practice. So how, how do we know which device to use in which situation? Yeah, Silas, thank you. So listen, that's a great question. And I, and I, what the, the reason why I feel so is because actually it's a question centred around physiology and not about devices and equipment. Because the physiology answers the question for you. So I, so. So the goal of airway care, when a patient can't look after or isn't looking after their own airway, is, is to safely and effectively gain and maintain a patent airway so we can have gas exchange down at the alveola. And, and that is our goal because that's what the patient is doing all of their lives. Our goal is gas exchange. So which device would be the correct device? Well, that would be the one that is most safely achieved and most effectively maintained to secure gas exchange. And I don't want us to focus on pieces of plastic. And we, we're going to talk about those, and we can talk about those. But I just want to take that stress of the equipment away, and I just want to break it down to the raw bones, which is this patient needs gas exchange within the respiratory area of their lung. And the airway's job is to act as a patent conduit for that. Yeah, and I guess, like, obviously that makes complete sense. And when you say it in such simple terms, it seems very logical. But I wonder, I kind of, I'm, I'm quite new to this critical care role, but I feel through my undergraduate studies and my experience as a non-specialist paramedic, there's a lot, lot of emphasis in training around the opposite, like you say, kind of pieces of equipment and very much a rigid stepwise approach and it never really related to the underlying physiology. Yeah, I um, but but yeah, you know, when you say it like that, um, it, it makes a lot of sense. So I guess the the follow up question with that is, what kind of physiological endpoints are you looking at to to 
um, kind of show you that you've managed the airway effectively or, or that what you're doing is appropriate for the patient in front of, in front of you? Yeah. So, so ways to assess. I mean, we've got, I mean, we should never forget that we should still be a clinician. So we should, we should and do use both objective and subjective measures. And we should do that because we are professionals. And no matter how much uh, technology we have, that won't detract from the fact that we still need to be a clinician. And so, and so how do we know that what we've done has been successful and is achieving our end point? And so we, we're still looking at the patient the way we do. We're assessing them. We're looking for things like, are they a good colour regarding oxygenation? So were they a worse colour uh, on their complexion and, and improving? Are their oxygen saturations improving if they were not in a cardiac arrested state? and we were ventilating them. Of course, looking at things like uh, capnography is absolutely paramount to assess the flow of air through the airway and also hopefully showing us that we've got a rival down at the respiratory area with the alveolar plateau on top of our waveform. And not forgetting, of course, that capnography isn't simply an, an, an intubation piece of equipment. It's a, it's a standard 15 millimetre 22 millimeter connector and it fits on every single airway adjunct all of the cushion masks coming on to the manual resuscitators all of the extraglottic devices and all of the endotracheal tubes and we can use that technology to to, to see the end point of alveolar ventilation in all of those devices of course lastly what we commonly hear and what we should also do is look for gentle chest rise and fall and I think that that's that's spoken of frequently in it and it should be I just want to make sure that we're all comfortable that that gentle chest rise and fall is is a perfect end point in children and it's also a perfect end point in healthily weighted adults but as soon as we start to put on extra weight or we move into central obesity then looking for chest rise and fall could lead us into providing very large tidal volumes indeed and so that's just one of the many things that we look to assess when we're seeing that we've got an effective patent conduit to arrive at the alveolar. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. I think the, the point you make about the capnography on all forms of airway is something that really kind of changed my practice as I as I kind of specialised in this area. And previously, um, again, maybe as a product of my training or just my understanding of, of the devices we have, I would um, use... Uh, side stream capnography once I had an advanced airway circuit so an IGO or, or an intubated patient um, but I rarely use that in a airway circuit as part of basic um, um, ambu bag ventilation and I think that that's an excellent point to make and I've started doing it a lot now that actually just because you're using an ambu bag to ventilate with some basic adjuncts like you say doesn't mean you can't attach your circuit and have side stream capnography attached to that and still look at the same kind of physiological endpoints. Um, I think is an excellent point. Absolutely. Listen, and, and uh, although we're, we're, look, I'm, we're, I'm going to pick up on language because you wouldn't expect me to do anything different. Oh, I wondered how long it'd take, but I'm glad. Okay. I'm glad you're ready. Uh. You knew I would. <laughs> spent far too much time with me. Um, is that listen, using a, an ambu bag or or a, or a bag valve mask, a self-inflating bag, a manual saturator, that is everything except basic. It will never be easy. It is essential. And so those things are essential airway skills to provide essential airway care. They're life-saving. And goodness only knows that using a manual resuscitator 
really well for a protracted period of time is the antithesis of basic. Yeah, no, that is a fair point, and I appreciate you picking me up on it. I think, um, again, that's something with our, um, you know, with with part of this role, we go through theatre placements and stuff again, and it's it's something I found as an undergraduate, and really, um, it was something I really noticed again when I recently went through theatres. Is the actually, like you say, the the um, intervention of using a manual um, ambu bag can actually sometimes be a lot more complicated than maybe using an eye gel and ventilating someone through that. So. Fair points. I um, hold my hands up to that one. No, no, it's fine. Do you know the other the other thing, Silas? There, as we as we just mentioned, a couple of devices. In in if we're looking to provide exquisite ventilation through the devices these days, and and the way that we should best be doing that in an undifferentiated out of hospital setting, the only device that is a single operative use left is extraglottic device and so whether that is a supraglottic by way of eye gel or lma or whether that's an extraglottic um but by way of a a, a laryngeal tube or, or a king device the those those types and those families of devices are the single remaining solo operator piece of equipment because if we're doing bag mask ventilation beautifully and intubation then these things are team sports and so if you do have a resource limited environment then using those devices have other benefits there also yeah i think that's a great point actually and um, again chatting about the different devices is hopefully something we can kind of pick up on a little bit later on um, if that's all right perfect cheers if we if we can move on to my second question then and i guess it kind of leads on from what we're discussing but i just want to talk a bit about what we can do to maximize our success with the intervention that we choose um, for our patients so I guess we've talked a bit about airway devices available to us and we've mentioned the um, essential and sometimes misquoted basic adjuncts of um, oropharyngeal and nasopharyngeal airways. And you mentioned uh, just then eye gels and, and other supraglottic devices such as the laryngeal mask airway. And we've touched on um, intubation, which I hopefully will speak about uh, in a little bit as well. Yeah, I guess my question is how, how can we, once we've chosen a device that we think is appropriate for the patient, what are your top tips, I guess, in, in how we can maximise our chances of successful um, ventilation with the device that we've chosen? And I guess the second question coming off that is how do we know when maybe we need to escalate or, or change device um, responding to that changing physiology? Yeah, sure. So, so yeah, a couple of questions in there. So, so top tips for getting the best out of out of uh, out of the devices, and I, that that kind of that comes with with firstly understanding why why certain devices might not be the best choice for certain cohorts of patients. And listen, there are loads of uh, there are loads of prediction tools out there um, that that you'll find, and and all of those. Uh, you know they do pr- pretty okay at finding some difficulties, but they they're not very reliable at ruling out the difficulties, and so and so they're they're very limited. What we do see running true through all of them are there's a couple of of, of kind of big bangs for bucks. So if, if you see these types of things in patients, then you know that certain devices might not sit well with them. So things like if you've got a patient who has narrow mouth opening. So a narrow interincisor gap. If you can't open their mouth more than three three centimeters, four centimeters, then that that's got a definite opportunity to be challenging, purely by restriction of entering the mouth. And I'm not even talking about a laryngoscope. I'm talking some of these superglottic devices are are really quite chunky themselves. And so you, you might find actually 
having that as a problem could make you lower your threshold for moving on from devices. Things like things like neck mobility. You know, unless your patient is is a trauma patient where you're going out of your way to mitigate large movements of the neck from the outset. There's no reason why we can't make a subtle neck mobility assessment just simply by moving the patient's head or or placing them uh, into a better position to get a to get a range of movement because that's got a good correlation to airway care. Things like obesity and obesity is a funny one. We speak about that often in complex airway care, but the reality is that is that is that obesity doesn't in itself make the airway more difficult. What it does do. What it certainly seems to do in my experience and in literature is that it makes it less forgiving. It makes it less forgiving. And by proxy of that, it's more difficult. And then lastly is obstruction. If you've got an obstructed airway and that, that's either by a foreign body or by organic growth and trauma by way of swelling. And then these things commonly show themselves to be difficult. So let's have a what are you thinking, Cyrus? Yeah, and no, I was just going to say it's, it's an interesting thing, and again, it's, it's it's not something I had in my notes that we'd talk about, but it's interesting that you kind of refer to that because I guess what we're discussing is, in addition to respond responding to the physiology, um, or, or kind of how you're affecting gas exchange and and chest rise and fall with your ventilation, I guess what we're discussing really is the anatomy relevant to to how you kind of consider or you choose your airway device initially or there's certainly that kind of consideration in there. And um, again, when I was a bit newer to, to the paramedic role, when I was managing an airway, it would just be very much the it kind of escalate through my devices and see which one worked well. Whereas now, I, I, like you said, I think I spend a bit more time of trying to take the opportunity where I can, especially in patients that aren't an out of hospital cardiac arrest, maybe someone with a reduced level of consciousness or one where you're anticipating a reduction in consciousness and a need for airway management. Um, I've, I've started to, I guess, like you're saying, take the time to do a bit of an airway assessment and try and get a, a kind of ahead of the game in, in what I think the patient will um, best respond to. Does that kind of make sense? It makes perfect sense. And, you know, these these things there, I mean, we're, we're blessed, if we'll be honest, because I say of all of the airway prediction tools, of which there are countless, but those four things, they run true. They really do run true. And they're big bang for bucks. Now, the beauty of it is that for those four things, the four things we were speaking about there, narrow mouth opening, obstruction of the airway of any cause, reduced neck mobility and central obesity all four of those things are things that we can absolutely assess pre-hospitally in an unconscious or conscious patient. And that's wonderful because a lot of the tools are centered around anesthesia and rightly so, because that's the majority of airway care. But a lot of those things aren't practicable in a pre-hospital uh, or an unconscious patient. And those four things are really very usable. And the good thing about them is you're absolutely right. They are centered around anatomy and it has to be because of course the more you learn and the more you know the more you realize that anatomy and physiology is everything science is inherently lazy everything in science is inherently lazy we learn that from our primary school years as we do as we move through and find out that we ourselves are inherently lazy unless we take the drive to be different now now flow of air is exactly the same it's in it's inherently lazy and so it will take the path of least resistance our job is to make the airway more attractive than the other opportunities and and that and when you just break it down to those ways of thinking 
it all becomes much less frightening and much less of a large kind of you know overpowering thing yeah no i completely agree with that and i think um i find there's there's some i guess kind of beauty in the in being able to break something complex medically down you know a kind of stressful complex situation down into what is essentially just simple effective ventilations uh sorry simple effective interventions um and and by doing so you kind of make your own job easier um and i guess what is minimal minimally invasive and appropriate and effective for the patient is always good yeah absolutely um cool if we can just move on then there's a couple of other points i just was hoping we'd be able to discuss so you've mentioned um, obesity in there and um that's something that gets discussed a lot in terms of positioning the patient um historically i'm sure it's the same for you we've kind of always been taught about this sniffing the morning air position and then um more recently i think in the literature there's been other kind of recommendations in there i wonder if you could just um chat briefly about patient positioning and how you would kind of optimize patients of different um kind of categories in, in terms of adult obesity normal sized adults quote unquote um and in and in children again and how you would uh, position patients to kind of maximize your your intervention or the efficacy of your intervention yeah no absolutely and so as you say i, I like I, you know I'm, I'm a i'm a traditionalist and i like it and i like the fact that we've gone gone in early with the sniff the morning air position sniffing the position it's a position that everyone i have no doubt would would have heard um and the problem is is that is that familiarity breeds contempt and so we can we can know that that position and we can say sniff the morning air and when you say that to somebody quite often what they do is they move themselves into a position with their head and neck that 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 kind of suggests it but then when you ask them actually what it is the position that was originally defined back in 1944 by Bannister Macbeth it was a very clear and it was in the Lancet it's a very clear it's still open access you can gain the paper The, the position is defined by specific angles of the lower and upper cervical spine and that isn't practicable now we need to move away from those languages because we can't measure them and if we can't measure them then we don't know that we've achieved our goal and similarly we don't know that we have not achieved our goal so more recently um we hear we hear uh, phrases uh used by scott weingart certainly back from 2010 rich levitan uh, saying ear to sternal notch and more recently we hear People like Nick Crimes and, and, and Tim Cook use phrases like flex tension. And what those what those phrases are saying is, is about movement of the upper and the lower portion of the cervical spine. And these things and, and, and these are really great, not only because they're, they're sound bites, they're very they're very uh, catchy and they stay in our memory, but also because they're they're centered around surface anatomy. And so we can use surface anatomy to define our goal. And so when we look at that, what we're trying to do is, is if the patient were to lay just on the floor with their head on the floor, naturally, their ear would be below their suprasternal notch. So the, the tragus, the meatus of the ear would be below their suprasternal notch. And that's not a great position for clinical airway care. So what we're trying to do is get the head up off the floor, get the head up in height so that the tragus of the ear is higher than the suprasternal notch. And the problem with phrases like intersternal notch, and that's certainly not, not in any way a slur to it because it's, it's an incredible uh, phrase because it stays in your mind for 10 years as it has done. But it, it's a sound bite. Um, and, and that means that it doesn't actually say the whole picture. What we can't do um, is, is just simply achieve 
our ear above our sternal notch by flexing the base of the neck. The face has to be parallel to the sky. And so flex, flexing the base of the neck and extending the top of the neck will give you that airway position. And that allows laminar flow. And, and I want to bring that back to what we were speaking about, those basics, rather than just simply giving a, giving a, a, a kind of a, a phrase and then not saying why. It brings it back to that basics of lazy science. It brings it back to having a, a nice patent airway to allow attractive, smooth, laminar flow of air. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And, and I, too, am an inherently lazy person, maybe more so than, than many others. And I, I know that. <laughs> hopefully not in my clinical work, but pretty much every other part of my life. Um, and yeah, I kind of, I think, I think it makes sense. So, and the way I kind of simplify that the airway management in my mind is when I'm in, in my normal physiology, if I'm getting comfortable lying in bed, I'll sleep on a pillow to again, elevate my head. And I'm assuming it makes my airway more comfortable and makes it the easiest for me to breathe that it is. And it kind of goes, um, I, I apply the same kind of thinking to immobilizing patients in trauma, but it's very it feels very abnormal to be lying flat on the floor and forcing your kind of occiput into the ground. It's not a comfortable position for me. I'd rather have something under my head, making my neck a bit more comfortable and making myself more comfortable as a result. And that's the kind of logic I then apply to patients that I'm caring for is, you know, I wouldn't want to be lying in a position with my neck kind of pushed back into the floor and the wall. And so logically then it'd be more comfortable for them to have their head a little bit elevated. And I guess that's where the science kind of comes from. Yeah, and it is, and you're absolutely right. And and not and and the great thing is that that logic is backed up by science. And so and so yeah, there's and and you know you could look at countless uh, imaging studies that show that making those movements have a real effect on the on the width and the breadth of the hypopharynx and the and the the, the aperture of the open airway really does make some wonderful benefits in those positions. And so definitely, and and I don't want to and in any way underestimate or, or, or in any way suggest anybody else should underestimate the power of good positioning that will change the airway game it is phenomenal i know you mentioned earlier silas about about what if we had larger patients either either via um you know central obesity or, or maybe even pregnancy we're looking at those larger patients how how could we just get that little extra kind of for our for our positioning on those and uh and I know that you mentioned earlier a little bit about ramping. You know, you can, what, you, what you can do there, depending on the context of the patient and, and the holistic care needs from them, but you can just ramp them up a little bit. And what that means is just bring their back sat up slightly, maybe into a into a low fowler's position, you know, that kind of 15 to 30 degree head elevation. There's a couple of benefits there. What we can't, what I, what we can't do, and what I'm not a fan of, I, I do see other people doing it, and, and it's it's not a slur there. But what we can't do is just do that alone. I still need that neck flexion. I still need to have the the lower neck flexed and the upper neck extended to get that 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 sniffing position in old money on top of the on top of the ramping. The ramping's there for two reasons. Firstly, it does help the airway a little bit because gravity becomes our friend. It moves the soft tissues of the hypopharynx and pharynxes downwardly rather than backwardly into either our airflow tract or into our field of vision. And so it just allows those soft tissues to relax more downwardly. 
But also, once we have then started to aerate the lung, we've recruited more of our lung. And so we've got a better functional residual capacity down in the bases of those lungs, down in down in lower West Zones 3. We've got some better uh, lung recruitment to then use the airway to facilitate that gas exchange. Yeah, and I think that's an excellent tip, is that um, sometimes taking the time to really you know take the time to really concentrate on positioning the patient rather than uh rapidly kind of escalating through your airway options can can really save you from getting into a, a situation a, a complex airway management situation that makes you stressed and, and maybe is ultimately unnecessary um and like you say kind of in, by improving their physiology minimize the level of intervention that you need to provide to to give effective care i guess yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks, that Scott. I just want to—I'm wary of your time, so I just want to kind of move on to um, one other thing within within this kind of maximising success um, point that I wanted to discuss is um, so. So historically, we've spoken about a stepwise approach, and you've you've uh, mentioned Nicholas Grimes in there. I understand he's he's the kind of mind behind the vortex approach to airway management. Um, which is something that I've I've started to bring into my practice. I find it, it works quite well with my uh, the the way I kind of think about airway care. I wonder if you could just take a minute or two to to comment on that and, and tell me your thoughts on that and and whether you use that in your practice or or not. So yeah, absolutely, Sarge. So, as you say, yeah, uh, historically, we, and and, and I, I I mean it's unfair of it's unfair of me to say historically because we're still using those now today here. Certainly, JR Calc and the Difficult Airway Society still uh, run through the the uh, airway ladder and they they use those ladders differently as you look at them the the difficult airway society uh, and associated ladders are really centered around anesthesia uh, and and then it's kind of partnered out to other users and it works through an airway plan which is primarily centered around intubation and then moving through those other options and of course jr commonly uh, reverses that uh, into an escalating plan, and and I'm not in any way offended by that. I think so we're we're trying to do the minimal and then working our way through. What what is different though with those types of ladder than the vortex is that it sets out a very clear defined way that you have to use those devices. Now I think that that is uh, and can be very beneficial to the early uh, users, to the learners, people that are just starting to work their way through their journey professionally then i think having that structure is is probably very beneficial um in in all walks of profession uh in 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 the in the airway field because that gives you a very clear defined next step the the thing that i take from the vortex and i do use that in my practice i agree with you silas i think it's a wonderful tool and and i use it uh, I think there's two major benefits there, if I be honest with you. And I don't in any way want to suggest there aren't others because goodness only knows there are. But for me, I find two benefits. Number one is that it's it, I, I feel the Vortex is for more experienced users. It's for people who already know the answers. What they need is a gentle shove to be moved on. And so the Vortex doesn't have a ladder by way of saying use one device after the other after the other it says that there are three uh, non-surgical upper airway lifelines and they center around the devices available the cushion mask the extraglottic device and the endotracheal tube and you can use those in any order that you see fit and similarly you can start with any device that you see fit 
but you have to have one best attempt, at least one best attempt of each of those devices before moving down to a surgical option. And so that, I guess, go on. yeah, sorry to interrupt you there. I guess it's, it's kind of an interesting point to make because to to start, to, to choose of three main uh, lifelines, as, as you call it, um, I, I can see how it feeds into a slightly more experienced practitioner's mindset because I guess to, to appropriately choose one device over another, it almost relies on you having done an airway assessment like we've discussed. Whereas a, a stepwise approach, maybe you could fit that in um, without doing a, a kind of um, conscious assessment of the airway and escalate through kind of responsively to their physiology and anatomy. Whereas, like you say, taking the time to do that assessment means that you're kind of proactively considering what, what, what device would be appropriate for that patient. And that kind of gives you a bit more uh, leverage to, to choose the device that you think is appropriate and then move from there, I guess. It, it does. And, and let's 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 take a moment to be fair there, because I, I, what I don't want to do is put out a vibe that would be unfair with the with the ladder approached um algorithms let's not forget the same the airway ladder is the same as the pain management ladder so those ladders are there to show you options forwards and backwards but but at no point you you can you can enter in on any rung that you feel you need to you don't have to start at the bottom if you already know that that isn't going to work or or you strongly feel like that isn't probably likely to work and so i don't want to be unfair to the ladder because you can you've got an option to choose any rung and it lays out the path in front and behind you but what the vortex does is it just gives you picture based tool and that's very important in human behavior as we become more stressed and arguably more excited we lose our ability to read and listen very well but what we can do is still see pictures schematics and so and so it uses a, a, a very clear picture based tool and so that that's where i see that fitting into a, a more experienced user who already has some answers and actually just needs to be guided along the journey the other thing that i see a massive benefit in vortex is the language because there are there, i say there are lots of of, of, of benefits and I, I would strongly suggest that people go and have a look at that uh, that website the vortex approach website because it's marvelous and the website has, has got loads but but the other thing is the language of if your three upper airway lifelines have not been successful then you will undertake a can't intubate can't oxygenate rescue intubation surgically now that is profoundly different to language to what we may use or see in different guidelines which would say a failed airway to some some of those guidelines even specifically say verbatim declare a failed airway and, and i think that we we ourselves need to be very conscious in human behavior that the the, the term failed has and always will have a profoundly negative connotation and what you're asking people to do is to place that word upon themselves now, you, you and I both know that that isn't true, that, that, that the clinician hasn't failed at all. This this airway has been unsuccessful. No one has failed. But the, the problem is, is that when we ask people to place that label upon themselves, they can subconsciously find that incredibly very difficult. And we see that throughout the years and throughout the case reports and, and throughout NAP4. We see that you only have to you know, take your time and a, and, a, and, a, and a big mug of coffee to work your way through NAP4 to see that that is true. 
And so the vortex doesn't offer that language. It offers you a rescue. And that's very different. That's that's something that's there to support something that hasn't been successful rather than declare it something else. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, I've thankfully yet not been in a situation where I've where I've had to provide a surgical airway intervention, but obviously it's something that, that you and I practice very often and, and think about quite often in, in our roles. And um, certainly in my mind, it's I, I know personally it wouldn't make me feel great to declare to an entire team that I'm working with that I've just failed yeah. um, in, in terms of then trying to do one of the probably most stressful interventions um that you can do in my career so yeah so i think that's a great point and and like you said language is really important there and i'm, I'm with you Sarge. just on a just on a reference there i i have been in a position to provide a, a pre-hospital surgical airway successfully and i had the uh, the most wonderful and supportive team with me however i was working off of uh i was working off of a, a not the vortex which meant that i did as i was meant to do overtly declare a failed airway and i've got to tell you that felt really lonely and i wasn't alone i had some wonderful colleagues that supported me and continue to throughout the procedure and subsequent care but that felt incredibly lonely that moment that word and the vortex doesn't offer that cool thanks for that scott last last um kind of question in this section then if if you don't mind i just want to briefly kind of go back to positioning and um just talk a bit about the difference between positioning for intubation and positioning to maximize um efficacy of the of the airway you're choosing i think one of the big learning points for me in terms of airway management is um as a less experienced paramedic i used to consider uh, maximizing your first attempt that kind of terminology as um optimizing a patient's position in order to maximize my first attempt at being able to intubate and as i've become more experienced um i've started to kind of rightly hopefully um uh position people to maximize the the airway that i'm using at the time um does that make sense so maybe just if you could comment on on that kind of your understanding of that um improving positioning for airway management rather than just for intubation yeah definitely and so yeah again so i yeah that, i mean i don't in any way want to suggest any of these things like the capnography positioning is not an intubation uh it's not an intubation position it is an airway position it's about patency laminar flow and lazy science and so doesn't matter what device you're using whether that's the bag valve mask an extra glottic device or intubation our patients should be paid uh, should should in, in every in every uh, scenario possible should be positioned beautifully and that doesn't take very long i've got to tell you and that's something that you could just kind of drill you know if, if you have if, you, if you're you know, having a learning time or, or if you've got a you know a few moments on on station with a with a colleague or a mannequin you know you can drill those it doesn't take very long all you're really looking to do is elevate the head up off the floor maybe three or uh, three or four inches up off the floor and then get the face parallel to the sky and and uh and and so that's that's great the great thing of course is that the overwhelming majority what what something like 80 percent of of cardiac arrests happen in a domestic setting and and so uh everyone everyone who's been in the in the, in the pre-hospital emergency care world long enough has got that story about the the cardiac arrest around the back of the toilet or 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 wedged up you know so, but but the overwhelming majority of cardiac arrests happen in, in 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 quite clear places 
And that doesn't mean that we have a resuscitation room like the hospital do. But but actually, they happen in the lounge or in the bedroom. And if they don't happen in the lounge, they happen in the hallway next to the lounge. And if they don't happen in the bedroom, they happen in the hallway next to the bedroom. And in every lounge, you have scatter cushions because that that is a that is that is far fast growing business. And and in every bedroom, you've got a pillow. So even 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 in those scenarios, we could do that very very quickly. And it allows for more efficient airway care. No two ways about it. I think that that should be part. If you if you if you're using checklists, if you're using checklists, um, which one would argue that you should be where poignant, not 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 checklists for the checklist sake. I know, I know that we can get carried away. Checklists are beautiful, and in fact, reading the checklist manifesto, uh, the book from Atul Gandhi, was 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 an absolute uh, an absolute delight for me. Um, but but it's very clear in there that that checklists have to be meaningful they have to be functional and they have to make things better if they don't then they're pointless and so if you are using airway checklists uh, which i would strongly suggest we do then then positioning has to be really really high on that um because not only do we need the airway to be patent to prepare to deliver an advanced airway care but we also then need it to be uh, nice with clear lines so that we can see the structures uh, of the upper airway as we expose them with, with, with laryngoscope. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that, that leads me nicely into um, just discussing the specifics around intubation, I guess. Um, we, we'll talk a, a little bit um, later on, if that's all right, about, about intubation in, in paramedic practice. But as I know, it can be contentious. Um, but for those of us that are intubating, regardless of profession, um, and in the pre-hospital, out-of-hospital environment, what would be your what, what's your kind of approach to maximising the uh, first pass success, as people say, or the effectiveness of your intubation attempt? And yeah, I guess your kind of top tips around successful um, intubation. So yeah, absolutely. So 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 I'm glad you said about there about fast pass success, because that should be, that should only ever be our goal. And don't get me wrong. There are some, there are some times when we may not be successful. Those times should be rare. And the reality is they're probably not as rare as they should be, but we should be aiming and achieving first pass success. The overwhelming majority of times. Uh, and the way that we're, we're going to do that is by understanding the procedure. We understand that it's not simply simp- intubating a patient isn't simply pacing a piece of PVC within their trachea. That is that is merely just a moment. Intubation itself is a is a is a you know it's a it's a complicated um, piece of process because there are uh, multiple things to do that involve multiple people with multiple risks, and uh, and so and so we have to just really take a moment to understand the process. I need just to think about. Uh, you as an operator i need to think about yourself as a piece of machinery are you the best piece of machinery you can be Uh, and so looking to just just simply get your head back from the patient to expose a better field of vision rather than feeling like we've got to encroach right into their mouth making sure that our arm positions are well don't don't have your, your your arm out like a wing because uh, that just allows for poor mechanics. We're not strong that way. And I'm not saying that we need to be strong, but we do need to be clever with our biomechanics. So making sure that elbows nicely tucked down by your side and so that you've got all of the muscle fibers in your arm from your shoulder to the tip of your thumb moving uniformly in one 
in one plane. And so you, using yourself uh, as a best tool, understanding the patient, making sure that you've assessed their needs by looking at their mouth opening and their neck mobility and their body habitus from, from, from their weight perspective or risk of obstruction. Uh, understanding that their position is a game changer. So if you were preparing for intubation, uh, then just take a refresh on that. Go back and just reconfirm that your position is how you want it to be. Um, and then also think about your equipment. And so choosing the equipment correctly, choosing the laryngoscope that you'd like to use, um, that, that you're proficient with. I don't want to make people feel like, oh, well, you must you must use this tool for this patient cohort. Those things are old hat and they've gone. What you need to do is use the tool that you are proficient with and that you feel very confident with. But definitely understanding equipment like the uh, the, the intubating bougie or, or the manual stylet, depending on where you work around the world and what you has a, as a system. Um, and so, you know, uh, and, and the same with suction, using suction. Bear in mind that, you know, fluid-based airway soiling is undoubtedly one of the most common complications we see in a pre-hospital undifferentiated setting. We need to know how to use and troubleshoot those equipments. So getting the best out of you, getting the best out of your patient and getting the best out of your equipment means that intubation will be more successful. It's not just about plastic and metal. Yeah, no, I think they're great points. Cheers, cheers for that, Scott. I think there's a few things um, that, that I kind of have in my uh, mind when, when attempting intubation. Um, one is from, again, Nicholas Grimes, I think, um, references this this approach of um, epiglottoscopy, uh, voleculoscopy, laryngoscopy, and then intubation, and, and this kind of stepwise approach to, to passing the tube. And I guess that kind of emphasises, like you say, considering the different points and not just getting task focused on passing a piece of plastic into the trachea um and and i can put links for that in in the notes yeah do that that side yeah you're absolutely right i remember i remember when that came out first time rich levitan first spoke about epiglottoscopy and about the fact that the only reliable to to find the only reliable way to find the glottis is to find the epiglottis i couldn't agree with that more when you when you just simply look at those words bear in mind that the epiglottis is on top of the glottis yeah and they're all kind of like you know when you say them it almost sounds ridiculously simple but it's, it's those kind of again like we said before going back to the real simple basics of, of what you're doing but consciously thinking through them can just make such a difference to the approach that or to the intervention you're trying to to give the patient. Yeah, I agree. I think the other the last thing that I'd say on this Oz, before f from my perspective about optimization of first pass success and successful entry to the trachea is just coming back to that that word and just breaking it down to language. What we're looking to achieve here is laryngoscopy. We're not doing cordoscopy. There's a lot of things on, on, on a given day, if things were to line up correctly, there are a number of things in the throat that can look like cords. However, there's only one thing that looks like the larynx. So I want people and I think people should be more. I want us to really focus on defining the posterior cartilages of the arytenoids, the cuneiforms, the corniculates. Just looking at those posterior cartilages of the back of the larynx, that truly defines the organ, not two random quasi-white stripes in a hole. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great point. 
Alright, so I think we'll pause there and save the rest of our chat for part two. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you found our conversation interesting and useful. And if you have, please do subscribe. And if you want to leave a five-star review, well, you know, that's up to you. If you want to get in touch, the email links to the to my Facebook page and website are, are going to be in the show notes. And finally, I'd just like to give a shout out to my friend and sound recordist, Jack Newman. Without his expertise, none of this would have been possible. Um, so his info will also be in the show notes if you, if you want to check that out. All right, that's it for now. Um, see you in part two. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.